You should be standing at the end of the sidewalk, facing the corner of 1st Street and Farragut Road. Facing the road, look at the smokestacks. Now look to the right of them. See that brown wall? Peeking over the top, you'll see the skyline of downtown Boston. If you turn to your right, you should see a small white-topped building sitting between two private roads marking the entrance to the Paul W. Conley shipping terminal. This place is loud and industrial, and that's fitting. But don't worry, we'll be walking into the residential part of this neighborhood soon. Welcome to South Boston, or Southie as you probably know it. We're proud of that nickname and just about everything else around here, including our strong identity as an Irish Catholic neighborhood. In the 1800s, the Irish immigrated to Boston to get away from the Great Famine. And they settled in Southie because no place else wanted them, and no one else wanted to live in this place. Southie has always been an island. Okay, technically it's a peninsula, but felt separate from the rest of Boston, which annexed the area in the mid-1800s. And this port defines our working-class identity. Irish immigrant laborers took jobs as dock workers and in the factories that lined First Street in front of us. The land was cheap and far enough away from the city to build iron and glass works that didn't belong in downtown Boston. Look at the gray sign with the white lettering in front of the shipping terminal. Paul Conley was a neighborhood dock worker who led Boston in the Waterfront War of 1952 when a Union gang of longshoremen from New York tried to take over this turf through intimidation and strong-arm tactics. With the help of local Irish gangs like the Mullins, Conley protected the dock workers' jobs. He is just one in a long history of local Irish who have fought for Southie. My family also came here from Ireland in the 1800s. And in some ways, I was a typical Southie kid. Born to a single mother, raised in a triple-decker, and immersed in my Irish pride. So it might surprise you that I still looked at myself as an outsider. See, my grandfather was black. And because of that, my mother and I looked different from almost everyone in the neighborhood. And sometimes that was tough. Especially in the 1970s. People here opposed school desegregation, and Southie got a bad rap for being anti-black. See, the courts ordered entire grades of students from predominantly white neighborhoods to be bused to predominantly black ones, and vice versa. And I was in public school during those 14 years, which became known as the Boston Busing Crisis. I'm Jennifer J. Roberts, writer and contributor for the Boston Globe and Boston Magazine, and I'm a proud product of these streets. Today, I'm going to tell you what it was like to grow up as an outsider in this neighborhood. A lot of the time, I didn't feel like I belonged here, in White Irish Southie. But then again, I didn't really feel like I belonged to any of the black neighborhoods I was being bused to either. Luckily, I had a father figure who looked out for me, and I'm going to introduce you to him in a moment. He was like a godfather to me. I don't mean the Don Corleone type. Although, anyone who knows this neighborhood knows that at the same time the busing crisis was emerging, gangsters like Whitey Bulger were doing their business on these streets. And Pat did run with those guys. But as a kid, I didn't really understand any of that. So it didn't mean anything to me. Okay, let's get going. Facing the entrance to the shipping terminal, let's turn left and cross the street to the sidewalk on the left side of 1st Street. Go ahead along the sidewalk with the road to your right. 
During the civil rights era of the 1960s, progressive politicians and activists were concerned about segregation in public schools. To address this, Massachusetts passed the Racial Imbalance Act of 1965. The law, which was the first of its kind, by the way, stated that any school with a student body of over 50% minority races was considered racially imbalanced. These racially imbalanced schools had to be desegregated or risk losing their state funding. The Boston School Committee consistently disobeyed the act and refused to execute its mandated busing. But then, in 1972, the NAACP filed a lawsuit to make Boston comply. And two years later, Judge W. Arthur Garrity of the U.S. District Court imposed and implemented the busing plan. Busing mostly affected the working-class neighborhoods that were already racially divided, including neighborhoods like Roxbury that were mostly black and Southie that was mostly white. So I was about six, and all I knew was that I was going to be sent to an unfamiliar grade school on the other side of town every morning. I didn't see what happened when the first buses carrying black students from Roxbury arrived in Southie, but I knew police had to escort them into South Boston High, past protesters carrying signs that said, nigger, go home. And I had heard that word hurled at me before, but at the time, my mother and I didn't really identify as black. See, my mother made her stance against busing very clear, referring to those blacks, and she wasn't talking about us. I was the darkest of her six kids, but if you asked my mother, she would tell you I was Irish. And as a kid, I went along with her until people in the neighborhood told me otherwise. On the street, I had many nicknames. None of them were Irish. Oreo, Jenny the Spook. But in Southie, everybody had a nickname. And well, I was the black girl. Carefully cross the street ahead and then turn left. After turning left, continue walking straight I was four when my big sister, Maureen, began to teach me how to fight. The night before she was being sent to live with relatives in North Carolina, she told me, you're going to have to learn to stand up for yourself now. It's like what mom says. You don't have to win every fight, Jenna, but you've got to fight. And that's where Pat Nee comes into the story. Stop here in front of the galley diner on your right. This place is a local institution because it epitomizes Southie, inside and out. Notice the patriotic American flag hanging proudly above the entrance. We love America, and we also love corned beef hash. This place has only four tables and 12 stools at the counter, so it's usually packed. But Paul, the owner, and his staff always find you a spot, even if you're not a regular. In a moment, you're going to go inside and get a seat. Order a cup of coffee and a corned beef hash if you're up for it. Okay, pause me, and after you've ordered, press play so I can tell you more about Pat. Well, now you're in the galley diner. Did you order some hash or the selfie omelet? Good. Here's Pat. Hi. How are you guys? Welcome to the neighborhood. People in Southie, they come into the diner and they greet each other. So try not to be a knucklehead. That's Pat. Charming, as always. But watch it. He is a gangster, after all. Pat was born in Ireland in 1943, and his family came to the United States in 1952. At 14, he joined that Mullen gang I was telling you about earlier. A local crew of thieves, the Mullen gang had a long turf war with the Colleen gang, run by an Irish-American crime family. Back then, the notorious gangster Whitey Bulger, who you've probably also heard of, was part of that Colleen gang. 
Pat may be known as a gangster, but to me, he was the guy who loved and protected me. And he also set me straight when I screwed up, which was a lot. Okay, you probably see a burly, white-haired guy behind the grill. That's Paul, the owner, and he's the perfect guy to tell you about Southie. If you see Paul, say hi and let him know you're on a detour. Hi, I'm Paul Schooners, owner of the Galley Diner. I think diners are the heart of the city here. Uh, everybody gets along, everybody comes down, solves their problems, and the galley is like that. If there's a plumber or a carpenter you need, there's probably somebody sitting right next to you so you guys can get the problem solved. That's the way we work down here with the galley. We uh, look out for each other, and that's what it's all about here. I've been here 24 years, and it's been going on for longer, longer than me. Hasn't died off in the neighborhood yet. So if you see me cooking behind the line, tell me if you're on a detour, and we'll get you on your way and get you served. Southie has always been a close-knit community, so when the busing decision came down, to us, it felt like City Hall was coming into our homes and tearing our kids away. The Irish gangs were one of the few voices in Southie that the city could not ignore, so people kind of accepted them for better or worse. Yeah, in 1974, right, when busing started, uh, Whitey and myself went down to the Boston Club one night and with a couple of rounds of buckshot, their slugs through their front windows. We needed to send a message. Was this after you and Whitey broke a truce? Well, I don't think we'd be riding around with weapons if we were still fighting each other. The Globe was printing a bunch of stories knocking people from Southie, saying we were only against busing because we were all racist. But all those editors and journalists were sending their kids to private schools. Everybody in Southie hated the Globe for that. People even blocked their delivery trucks with their cars so they couldn't get in the neighborhood. Here's the thing, though. Telling you about Southie really isn't a very Southie thing to do. You learn from an early age not to talk too much about certain things around here. When you're finished, take a look at the wall opposite the counter to the left of the windows. See all the framed pictures on the wall? Down near the bottom right, there's a picture in a black frame that says detour on it. That's me and Pat. Good looking group there. Okay, pause if you need more time and then hit play when you're back outside. You outside? Okay. With your back to the galley, turn right and start walking. We're entering City Point, the heart of South Boston. And even though new buildings like the one to your left are going up every day, it is still filled with classic Southie triple-deckers and townhouses like the brown and yellow one to your right. Cross the street ahead. The gray townhouse with the corner door should be on your right as you continue walking. When I was a kid, the area to your right was an empty field. But from 1894 until 1953, it was the North Point car house that served all the trolleys for the old Boston Elevated Railway. Check out your phone for one of the only remaining pictures. Yeah, back when we were kids, that car barn was filled with railroad spikes. So being smart kids, we'd sharpen the spikes and throw them at each other. I still have a scar on my leg from it. Continue walking. Families have lived in many of these houses for generations. My family has lived here since the 1800s, and always on 3rd Street. That's the street we're turning on at the corner ahead. I still remember being back at that house when my mom got the school board's card asking her to identify our race. She didn't check the black box, because to her, we weren't black. We were Irish. I had no idea that that little box would be such a big deal. Turn right on 3rd Street and start walking with the street on your left. 
Most likely when my mother checked that box, my fate was sealed. The irony, of course, is that the city sent one of the only black girls in Southie all the way across town to the already mostly black school district of Roxbury. I don't think that's exactly what Judge Garrity had in mind. Stop just before the gate of the white picket fence on your right. Then look left across the street to the small green house with the brick driveway. See the numbers 799 just above the door? Those were the last numbers several enemies of Whitey Belger ever saw. In 1985, when I was still a kid riding my bike around this street, Deborah Hussey was strangled in the kitchen of that house by Whitey Bulger. She was the stepdaughter of Stephen Fleming, Whitey's right-hand man. Whitey believed she knew too much about his criminal operation because she had been bragging about her connection to him in a local bar. Remember, it's not a very Southie thing to do to talk. Like many other bodies, they buried her in the unfinished dirt basement. I can almost imagine the lace Irish curtains blowing in the wind as I rode my bike by that house. This was my neighborhood, but I didn't know what was going on behind closed doors. Yeah, I know I'm no saint, but we did have limits to our street behavior. Unfortunately, Whitey didn't. All right, let's get out of here. Facing the house, turn right and continue walking with the street to your left. Just like Jennifer, my family lived on 3rd Street, too. We came from a little town of about 400 in the Galway province to this big city. I really didn't speak English well back then, so you can imagine I had a hard time adjusting at first. Stop up ahead in front of the little alley on your right. This is Grace Court. You should be standing between two off-white double-decker townhouses bordering an alley. See the one on the left, next to the fire hydrant with the bay window and the black stairs in front? That's Pat's childhood house. Take a look at your phone, and you'll see a young Pat with the Mullins. When my family moved into this house, we didn't know anyone in the neighborhood. And the first one that came to knock on our door was Jennifer's mother. She brought baked goods, bread, I think, to welcome us to the neighborhood. And she became real good friends with my mother, and they stayed friends all their life. That's how I got to know this little rascal popping out of alleyways and showing up on rooftops. Okay, turn right into the public alley. Head down to where it opens up in the back. My mother's skin was too dark to be camouflaged by shamrock pins. But I think that's why she connected with Pat. He was this kid from Ireland, and even he was an outsider here. Stop just past the light yellow fence on your right, before the duplex house with the light brown siding. This house was my mother's childhood home. My mother was born here in 1934 and was still living here in 1952 when Pat's family moved in across the alley. Yeah, it took me a while to catch on about racism, but uh, she had a tough time in the neighborhood, and uh, she learned lessons that she passed on to me. Basically, she told me, you don't have to win, but you have to fight. Yep, that's my mom. No, she taught me a lesson. You have to fight, otherwise you're going to get beat up constantly. While facing my mother's house, turn to your left and look over that brown wooden fence and across the field. See the small greenhouse with the back porch? That's where my mom's best friend Eunice lived. I remember my mom and her friend Eunice sitting in Eunice's kitchen drinking Miller Lights and smoking cigarettes, complaining about busing and having to send their kids to Roxbury, which is exactly where I ended up going. But I never saw my mom or her friends address her race specifically. It wasn't something we acknowledged or talked about, which was ironic, given what was happening in the streets every day. One day I came into Eunice's kitchen, 
and told her and my mother that one of the kids in the neighborhood was bullying me. They looked at each other, and my mother nodded to Eunice as if to take the lead. She took a puff off her cigarette and said, What are you doing here? Get back out there and do something about it. So yeah, I fought. A lot. I think that's why Pat and I got along so well from the start. Even though we were both Irish and Catholic, we were still outsiders here in Selfie. Pat, because of his Irish accent and customs, and me because of my skin. And we both had to fight to survive here. It's a good thing we had a good trainer. Okay, turn left and walk back up the alley to the street. I joined the Marines when I was 17, and in the course of four years, they sent me all over the world, eventually to Vietnam. And while I was over there, my family moved into a bigger and better house just up the corner at Owen Dirt. Make a right and continue walking. When I got back from Vietnam, I moved into a new house up the street, and I set up the first floor as a base of operations for the Marlin Gang. Everyone knew it as the club. I remember there was this old wooden bar, and in the middle was a table shaped in the outline of Ireland, a place far, far from Southie. Jennifer and her family moved into the upstairs apartment a little later on, and when Jennifer was little, she'd just walk right into the club like she belonged there, and she kind of did. I'm not sure what that says about her. I remember people would look at me like, you're going in there? And I was like, yeah, so what? I want a Coke. There were grown men that wouldn't come in the club without an invitation. That's why I liked Jennifer. She was tough. But even though we had her back, she never once fell back on us for help with her problems. She took care of herself. Well, I knew if I came to you and said someone was picking on me or whatever, it was going to be really, really bad for them. I didn't want it to come to that. Well, that's how it is in Southie. We help each other out. But we're also tough enough to take care of ourselves. Up ahead, carefully cross the street. Okay, let's stop here. You should be standing on the corner of Owen 3rd Streets, in front of a triple-decker townhouse with bay windows. That's the place. The upper floors were my home until I was 12, and Pat's club was on the first floor. See the bay window on the top floor looking out onto the street? That was my room. When I close my eyes and picture home, this is it. I used to sneak down the back hallway into Pat's club for a soda, or steal one of my mom's cigarettes and go up on the roof to write. When all else failed, I could still put everything down on paper. Okay, turn around so your back is to my house and you're facing the school across the street. This corner is also where I waited for the school bus to Roxbury for the first time. As I stepped on the bus each morning, preparing for that 45-minute ride to school, I'd watch most of my friends walking to the Perry School down the block or go through the doors of the private St. Bridget's Catholic School right there across the street. Cross the street to the corner in front of the school. Walk straight ahead in the same direction you cross the street, with the school on your right. Southie had a lot of little gangs and factions. Practically every corner had its own reputation and its own rules. So there were a lot of skirmishes between crews on those bus rides. But once the bus crossed into Roxbury, enemy territory as we called it, we were all together. We were all from Southie. Going to school in Roxbury was really confusing for me. The black kids were always asking me why the hell I was on the Southie bus. And because of my lighter skin, the Hispanic kids were always asking me why the hell I didn't speak Spanish. So I just told them all, I'm just me. Whatever the hell that is, I'm just me. And because I was just me, it meant that I didn't have to conform or try and fit in. 
In some crazy, unlikely way, it was freeing. Yeah, but in this neighborhood, uh, people paid attention to who you associated with. Once you hung out around with a group or a place long enough, you became known for it. Stop in front of these mailboxes on your left. When I was young, there was a group of two or three girls that hung out every day right here by these mailboxes, and thus became known as the Mailbox Girls. Yeah, everyone around here became territorial. Every group had their spot. My friends and I were M Street kids, but we'll get to there later. We hung in and around my house on Owen 3rd Street, but there were so many other little neighborhood gangs. Pat, isn't that why they called you guys the Mullins Gang, right? Because you hung out in front of Mullins Corner? Yeah, that's right. So choose where you stand very wisely around here. With the school to your right, look at the corner in front of you. We're going to cross there. This is Broadway, the commercial artery running through South Boston. Look at the houses lining this street. They're some of the best examples of the classic Southie triple-decker architecture. This intersection is called Healy Square, and it was a gathering place for people in the neighborhood, especially on the weekends after church at St. Bridget's got out. Take the crosswalk ahead to the corner, just in front of the market. Watch for traffic because there is no stop sign. You should be standing on the corner in front of the store under the maroon awning. When I was a kid, this place was McGillicuddy's Pharmacy. It had an ice cream counter inside, and I had my first line, Ricky there. McGillicuddy's was magical to me, a kid from a tiny rural town in Ireland. I had never seen a soda fountain or heard of lime rookies. The minute I sat down and took my first sip, I started feeling American. If they make it right, it's almost too tight to get down, but I loved it. This place was called the Creamery when I was a kid, and we came here to get honey-dipped donuts. I guess some people call them glazed. My friends all waited for me to get out of Sunday school at the academy across the street so we could get our donuts and play Relivio. Southie's version of tag. Yeah, I love that game. We played a version in Ireland, too. You could bust your teammates out of jail if you got to them and yelled Relivio. Little did I know that I'd end up in jail someday. I wish real life was that easy. Okay, in a minute, you're going to go into the store and buy some candy that we'll get to enjoy a little later in my story. Pause me and head inside. When you're back on the sidewalk and ready to continue, press play. Okay, you back outside with your candy? Standing with your back to the store, look across the street. That's the entrance to St. Bridget's Academy. Living across the street from the academy made me angry. It's a private Catholic school that a lot of my friends attended during the week. Then, on Sunday, I had to sit in the very same classroom for Sunday school. I sat at their desks and looked at their artwork on the wall and tried to imagine being in class with them. Being bussed away from all my friends made me feel like even more of an outsider in Southie. And I was never quite comfortable in my own skin, trying to figure out where I fit in. I went to St. Bridget's when I was at school, and let me tell you, it wasn't all that great. My mother made me wear uh, an Irish schoolboy uniform, even though none of the other kids wore uniforms. I had white knee-high socks, black shoes, a green tie, and a beanie on the top of my head. I got beat up three times before lunch, and that was just the first day. Ha, you were too Irish, and sometimes I felt like I couldn't be Irish enough. Facing the academy, turn left and walk straight up the sidewalk. On an early fall day when I was 12, I came home from school and my life was turned upside down. Our apartment looked like one of those crime scene shows, where blood was streaked everywhere. I called out for my mother, but I couldn't find her. My downstairs neighbor later informed me that my mother had had a hemorrhage and was admitted to the hospital. I really didn't know what to do. 
so I just hung out in the apartment for a couple days by myself. Finally, a neighbor realized that I was all alone and called my older sister Maureen to come and get me. Maureen hadn't lived with us since I was six, and her place didn't really feel like home. But I had no choice because my mother needed a long time to recover. This was definitely a life-changing moment for me. And unfortunately, my closest ally in the neighborhood, Pat, had had some trouble with the law, so he wasn't around either. Uh, I had to drop out of sight for a while for a robbery gone bad. And like I said, I wasn't the same. That's the understatement of the year. Saint Pat of Rusmuck. Well, you may not have been a saint, but you sure helped me out. On your left, you should see a big red brick church with a pointed roof. Stop in front of the set of four concrete steps leading up to the pair of tall wooden double doors. This is St. Bridget's Church. Catholic churches are important in Southie. When we come over from Ireland, the churches were a way to remember traditions and to create a community. On Sundays when I was growing up, you'd see everyone here. Didn't matter what corner you came from. Actually, St. Bridget of Kildare was one of three Irish patron saints in the Catholic Church. And one of her miracles was turning water into beer for Easter. Pretty perfect for Southie. You know, my life of crime started right here. Here? Yeah, down by the rectory. Facing the church, turn right and make your way to the opening in the black fence overlooking the courtyard below. That's the spot where I pulled my first robbery as an altar boy. Pat, God, I'm trying to go to heaven here. Turn left here into the opening and take the stairs down into the courtyard, towards the white statue in the middle. Stop here, just in front of the white Madonna statue. Look to your left. See the fourth arched window? The altar and the rectory are just inside there. When I was an altar boy, they kept all the change, mostly quarters, in uh, canvas bags, and they had a little closet behind the altar that they kept it in. And I kept watching and watching, and I said, they have no idea what they have in there. They don't keep track of it. They just bring all the cash over the priest house. So I took my robe, put it over my arm, and put the biggest bag of quarters I could find in my hand, and uh, walked home. And I was a little nervous. I was shaking like a leaf. But that money lasted me a long time, that big bag of quarters. I think this counts as a confession, by the way. However much of a mark this Catholic church might have been for Pat, it was twice as important as a haven for me without my mom around. When you're ready, turn around and head up the stairs. I was only about 12 then, but I knew I'd like being a thief. It was just a natural progression for me into the Mullen Gang and bigger and better heist. When you get to the sidewalk, turn left and walk up the street until you reach the end of the black iron fence at the corner. Stop there. As our Devon got better, it infringed on the Colleen's territory and uh, it went from fist fights to shootings. In 1984, after over 20 years running with the Mullen Gang, Pat became a part of a group in Southie who tried to smuggle eight tons of weapons in support of the IRA in Ireland. But when the boat arrived, it was met with the Irish Navy because a British informant had tipped them off. At the corner, turn right and cross East Broadway. Again, please watch for traffic because there is no stop sign. Continue walking with the park to your left. You are heading to the corner ahead. We had been working with the IRA for 10 years and it caught up with me in uh, 1987. I had to go to prison for a while. 
While I was in federal prison, uh, I had visitors from South Boston, lifelong friends, and they would keep me abreast of what's going on in the neighborhood, particularly with Jennifer. I said, just, just keep an eye on her. Yeah, that was all kind of shrouded in mystery anyway. You and the club were suddenly gone, but I knew better than to ask too many questions. Uh, there weren't a lot of answers. Continue walking toward the corner ahead. Well, especially not for me. There I was, 12 years old, being bused to a school across town. You were in jail. My home at Owen Third was gone. My mom was sick. And I was living with my sister in a crappy apartment. One day, a kid on the bus asked me where I lived. And I was so miserable, I wished my home life was picture perfect like I imagined other people's were. Stop here and look across the street in front of you. See that red house? Without thinking, I told the kid on the bus that I lived in this big red house, which was right next to our bus stop on this corner. Look up to the very top of the house to the black wind vane swaying on the roof. That's Mary Poppins, blowing in from the east to save the Banks family. I dreamed of living in a house like this with a family like that, so I told that kid this was my house. And since the kids on the bus were all from mostly the lower end of Southie, which was considered the other side of the tracks, most of them didn't know where I lived anyway so I never got busted. Turn towards the park, and with the park directly in front of you, carefully cross the street. Turn right so that the park is to your left and the road is to your right, and follow the sidewalk down the hill. On a map, this park is labeled Independence Square or Medal of Honor Park, but the neighborhood just calls it The Park. When we were little, we came here to play, and when we were teenagers, we came here to drink beer and cause trouble. And then we became adults and we came back with our kids to start the cycle all over again. But for me, as a teenager, it was the place to hang with my crew. This park became my second home. With my mom's hospitalization and Pat's arrest, I turned to my friends. In 1988, my mom found us a new place to live on the other side of this park. But that may as well have been across town. It might not look far away, but around here, that's a completely different corner and a completely different crew. So I had to make the long walk across this park to meet my friends, and that meant walking past the older kids and hearing their off-color comments. I tried to shrug it off as teasing, but it felt like something else. Yeah, you didn't put up with much of that crap, though. As you approach the end of the wall to your left, you'll see a set of concrete stairs, also on your left. Stop at the base of the stairs. I was only 12, but they still knew I'd beat the shit out of them because, as I said earlier, I knew how to fight from a young age but I still love this park. It was busy during the day, but it was at night when the real fun began. See the tall steel lights lining the perimeter? Every night around 9.30, they'd shut off and all the kids would go crazy. It was time to party. If you turn to your left and look closely to the top of the stairs on the wall, about two feet to the right from the stairs, there's a large crack. This is the spot where I always sat. Yeah, all the Mullins would hang out here too. In this same spot? Yeah, it was a good spot because we could see the cops coming from every direction and take off if we had to. I should have known. Okay, let's get going. But first, see those bleachers to your right? That's where they filmed the baseball scene in the movie Goodwill Hunting. It's a good spot to take a picture if you want to. Go ahead and use Detour's camera feature to take a photo selfie and post it to your social media. I'll wait for you. Okay. Turn around so the stairs are behind you and stand behind the black backstop directly behind home plate. 
If you look through the backstop past second base and into the distance, you'll see three smokestacks rising up from a couple of industrial buildings. Those smokestacks belong to the Edison Electric Company, and they're as big a part of our skyline as the Prudential Building is to downtown. That power plant was a big part of South Boston for over 100 years. We grew up in the shadow of its stacks as they billowed smoke all over the neighborhood. And regardless of whatever pollution they were sending our way, we were still proud of our working-class culture. The 18-acre decommissioned plant was sold to developers in 2016 for over $24 million and is probably going to be transformed into a mixed-use residential and commercial complex. But first, the developers will have to clean up all that environmental contamination. Nothing stays the same forever, but some things never change. People here are still proud. Okay, turn to your right so the baseball field is on your left. Let's walk along the sidewalk with the field on our left. Did you ever do the smokestack challenge? Uh, no. Yeah, we used to sneak into those factories. You could never get me to go in there. Yeah, we'd sneak into the Edison power plant. We'd make our way up onto the roof, and from there we could climb up the smokestack on the ladders. Edison security would eventually spot us up there, and they'd come out with bullhorns and yell at us to come down, but they wouldn't come up after us. It was too risky. And once we came down, they just kicked us off the property. We never got arrested. Continue walking. Despite defending myself with my fists, I was a pretty good kid most of my childhood. And eventually I settled into school in Roxbury, and I was doing quite well. But in 1987, I was about to go into seventh grade, and the Federal Court of Appeals ruled that busing desegregation had been, quote-unquote, successful, and the Boston School Committee no longer had to follow the plan. Suddenly, I was transferred back to Southie to go to school. It was culture shock, and I had a hard time focusing on my academics. I started to understand what the Irish gangs were doing around the neighborhood, and especially what Whitey was doing. But I didn't see Pat like that. And even though I knew he was involved with some of those things, he was like a father to me. Yeah, Whitey started dealing a lot of coke in Southie. It was here before him, but he really started pushing it in the neighborhood, which was the wrong thing to do in our community. Yeah, it seemed like kids were getting coke as easily as they were getting candy. Cross the street and stop at the corner ahead. You should be standing in front of a faded yellow three-story townhouse on the corner with boarded-up windows and doors on the first floor. I know this doesn't look like much now, but when I was growing up, the first floor of this building was a real candy shop run by a sweet old woman named Miss Binet. I thought she was like 100 when I was a kid, and she ran the shop forever. I can still hear the old creaky wood floors when you walked in and see her smiling face. Now is a good time to eat that candy you bought earlier. Imagine being here in the 80s as I tried to choose which candy to buy, Swedish fish or chocolate. And imagine all the neighborhood kids coming in here trying to find some normalcy. Because when they stepped outside, there could be bullets at any point flying over their head. As you eat, let's keep going. Facing the candy shop, turn right and continue in the same direction as before. Look across the street to your right. My best friend Donna lived in that light blue triple-decker with the two blue doors. Every morning, we would go into Miss Binet's shop and fill up a bag with penny candy before heading to school. That was one of the few places I felt truly happy, and I took that feeling to school with me in a paper bag. Even though crime was happening around this neighborhood, there were still corner stores and safe places to keep you grounded. Before you cross the street ahead, Stop at this corner for a moment. Take a look at the small black sign with gold letters on the corner diagonal from us. It reads John Joseph Mullen Square. 
in memory of a fallen World War II veteran. Uh, the Mullen Gang got its name from the street corners. Uh, this is where we would all hang out. It was crazy sometimes. Just up the street from here, Whitey ambushed me with a shotgun and I barely got away. It was a turf war. Down the street to your left, the truck from the docks passed through, filled with cargo. Me and the gang would find out what was on the trucks and someone would leave this block a little lighter with them when they came in. I remember the neighborhood always talked about things that fell off trucks and I just assumed things actually fell off trucks a lot. But it is how we did a lot of our shopping. Cross the street and continue walking in the same direction as before. Take a look across the street to your right. Up until 2013, the lot where those blue and white triple-decker apartments are was an empty field. It was filled with industrial debris, nails, pieces of wood, and metal everywhere. But all the neighborhood kids came here to ride bikes, build forts, and to fight. I throw rocks at each other. I remember throwing rocks. Of course you do. Continue walking. But as you do, take a look across the street to your right. I had some pretty big fights in that field. And those fights probably saved me from having a lot more, because everyone on the block knew I wasn't just talk. In fact, I wasn't talking much at all. When Pat went to jail in 1987, there was a long stretch of time in my life when he wasn't around. It just confirmed what I already knew. You couldn't really count on anybody but yourself. I had a zero-tolerance policy, and it didn't matter if it was a boy at a party or a girl on the street. If you fucked with me, you were going to pay. I was angry, and I knew how to fight, which is a bad combination. But that's what people respected in Southie. It's the language we spoke. If you opened your mouth or started shit, you should be able to back it up. I started fighting more, and word got around that people shouldn't mess with me. Continue walking to the corner ahead. I remember one time in the eighth grade, I got into a fight with the neighborhood bully, Grumpy Grondon. He was a miserable son of a bitch. I waited in an alleyway up the street for him after school one day. I had hidden a bow and arrow early in the morning under a porch. And when I heard him coming down the street, I stepped out and shot him right, right in the forehead. And uh, it was bouncing for a minute, then it fell out, and he started pouring blood, and he ran. That night, uh, him and his father showed up at my front door. My father asked me if I had shot him in the head with a bow and arrow. I says, yes. I said, okay, you're going to have to fight him. So we did. We fought. And once it was over, my father said, now it's over, and it was Cross the street ahead and turn right. Turn right and cross the street when it's safe. Continue walking with the street to your right. During busing, I was ripped away from my friends and my identity here in Southie. Then suddenly they ended busing and I was ripped away all over again. My new school here in Southie was awful and I hated it. The teachers even put out coffee cans in the bathroom so we could smoke. No one cared if you came or went, so why should I? But the neighborhood still had a way of keeping an eye on me. Take a look at the stoop on your left. The houses in this neighborhood don't really have front yards. Basically, everyone just hangs out on their stoops, talking to people as they walk by. People would literally sit on their stoops all day long watching the neighborhood. And by the time I was 14, these streets felt more like home than anywhere else. I was staying out later and later and missing more and more school. Cross the street ahead and turn left. After turning left, continue down the sidewalk. Ahead on your left, you should see a small house with faded yellow paint and a chimney. It's the fourth from the corner, recessed from the sidewalk a little. You see it there? 
continue walking along the sidewalk. That's the home of former Senate President Billy Bulger. And if the last name sounds familiar to you, yes, Billy was Whitey's brother. Some say he looked out for him as fiercely as he did for his beloved neighborhood of Southie. As of 2017, Billy still lived there with his wife, but he's been in poor health. Continue walking along the sidewalk. Despite being respected among his colleagues and constituents, Billy's legacy in Greater Boston is complicated because of accusations that he helped Whitey evade the police and FBI. But most people around here like him because he's one of us. He worships at St. Bridget's and walks Castle Island on the eastern tip of Southie nearly every day. Depending on who you ask, he earned his 18-year tenure as president of the Massachusetts State Senate on his own merits. Or he colluded with his gangster brother to rise to power and push his agenda. Billy always claimed he didn't know about Whitey's criminal activities and said he hoped the brutal rumors about him would be proven false. Either way, Billy looked out for the neighborhood. And by the way, he opposed Boston back in the day, which made him very popular. Okay, back to my story. By the time I was 14, the close-knit Irish community here didn't matter to me. I wanted out. I hadn't been going to school, so they sent me to truancy court. And I knew if I showed up to the court, I was going to be screwed. So I decided to run away with my friend Jeannie. The night before we were supposed to go to court, Jeannie and I met our friend Tommy in front of a corner store. It was technically my first night on the street, so I was busy making a bed out of milk crates while Tommy ate a ham sandwich. A black SS Monte Carlo pulled up, and before we knew what was happening, a guy in a ski mask jumped out of the car with a gun. I thought we were all dead, but he only shot Tommy. Turn left and look for the red emergency box on the corner ahead. Cross over to it and stop. Stop here. Another friend of ours ran over to a call box like this one and pulled down the white handle. When the police arrived, Jeannie started to tell them everything, but I smacked her and told her to keep her mouth shut. What are you, stupid? She knew I was right. It was Southie. That hit wasn't meant for Tommy. Uh, The Charlestown guys were after his brother and made a mistake. Tommy was shot five times, but he ended up pulling through. But that night, I was in a daze. Walking the streets alone at 3 a.m., it hit me, and I started to run as fast as I could until I made it home. I remember thinking, this is not how I want to live my life. So the next morning, I went to truancy court, and I took the option of attending the Compass School in Charlestown. Okay, face the park across the street from the call box. Look both ways, and using the crosswalk, Cross the street to the head of the path on the other side. Walk through the red brick plaza with the hockey rink to your left. Walk past the planted trees and continue down the walkway. Continue walking to the front of the building. You choose the straight and narrow when you are still young. It took me a little longer to sort that out. Yeah, it did. Hell, I'm still trying to figure it all out. Things may look ordinary around here, but as we've seen already, there's a lot happening under the surface. We're almost back to the water. That is what Southie is all about. Continue walking around to the front of the skating rink. After Tommy got shot, when I needed to get away, my friends and I would load up a boat with beer and take it to those islands jutting out past the causeway. We'd hang out all night drinking and partying. We did the same thing. Sometimes we wouldn't come back ashore for days. You could kind of do whatever you wanted out there. There were no rules. Just don't sink the boat. Follow the path to the front of the building on your left. When I was 12, I enrolled myself in a sailing class in the bay here with some of the other neighborhood kids. 
I went to step on the boat, but the neighborhood instructor tipped it over instead, saying, before you can sail, you have to learn how to swim. So swim. I spent the entire summer trying to swim the whole way across this bay. But you did it. That's the kind of lesson you learn in Southie. Stop on the concrete plaza, just in front of the white lettering that says Francis L. Murphy Skating Rink on the building to your left. You should be standing in front of the one-story brick building topped with a dark brown roof. The Francis L. Murphy Memorial Skating Rink and Community Center was dedicated in 1964 to Frank Murphy, a neighborhood firefighter who died in the line of duty when a toy factory collapsed on him. He was doing his job protecting the community, too. He still does, in a way. This place has become a real staple of the community. We love our ice hockey here, and lots of Southie's best players have come through here at one point or another. Okay, let's get a better view of the water. After all, that's what we love about Southie. With your back to the rink, turn left, and after passing the weird solar phone charging station, bear right towards the crosswalk ahead. Look both ways, and carefully cross this major street towards the concrete wall ahead. Turn left so the small concrete wall is just on your right, and walk ahead. Well, we're back where it started, the water. Just like I wound up back where I started in Southie. When I was 16, my mom sent me to live with relatives in Florida. After I had made all that trouble, she thought I needed to get away from this place for a while. She was probably right. But when I got there, all I could think about was coming back home. My whole life, I had told myself I didn't really belong in Southie. But when I left, I felt like even more of an outsider in the world. I started wondering, maybe I didn't belong anywhere. See the opening in the concrete wall? Turn right into it so that you're facing the beach. Look out in front of you. That's Pleasure Bay. In 1897, the city built the causeway you see encircling the water, sealing it off from Dorchester Bay. If you look to your left, you'll see an old stone fort. That's Fort Independence, where Boston Patriots forced the British to evacuate our shores when we won the Revolutionary War in 1776. I grew up negotiating my complex identity in this neighborhood. How dark did I have to be to be black? How white did I have to be to be Irish? And what determines our identity anyway? Where we live? Who we hang out with? What we are? When I came back from Florida in 1991, although it was only four months, it felt like forever. It was the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and I went to the park we visited earlier to watch. As I stood with my crew, I knew I was home. My mom was right. The fight is not about winning. It's about choosing not to run. I've fought all my life to be me. Not a black girl trying to be white, Irish, or anything else. I'm just Jen Roberts from Southie. And if you don't like it, you can go shit in your hat. That's an old Irish saying. Yeah, I probably picked it up from you. This is where Pat and I are going to leave you. But feel free to take your time here at the water's edge. It's my favorite spot in this neighborhood, and now you're part of Southie, too. 